Welcome. This is William Evans. Our guest today is Mari Margill from the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund in Spokane, Washington. Welcome, Mari. Thank you, Will. In our last interview, we spoke with Thomas Lindsay, a founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, and he talked about how communities are learning to fend off unwanted corporate projects. Could we also say health lacks legal protection and is illegal in America? Yes, I think we could. I think I'd put it in the context of rights in which we don't have a right to be healthy or we don't have a right to health care in this country. And one of the major reasons for this situation is that the state of our democracy and the reality of elected officials is that they're legally required to put commerce of private corporations ahead of the interests of people and definitely nature. Yeah, it's a pretty systemic problem that we face as communities, and people try to, for example, protect the public health, and they find an an amazing number of barriers stand in their way to do that. And the question is, okay, if we know those barriers are there, if we know that they are very much a part of that, what some would call a corporate state, what are we going to do about it? Yes. And so if health and sustainability don't have legal status, they don't have the right to be, to exist, or flourish. Uh, I think that's very well stated. So in such a world, climate change, financial manipulation, and mass extinctions are really no surprise, but rather just the consequences of the manner in which we currently do business. I think that's Right. I I also think, though, that we have to be very aware of how ingenious, if you will, the camouflage has been pulled over our eyes about the fact that that is the case. If you have an understanding of how the structure works, it would be no surprise that we would have these mass extinctions. But I think they are surprising for so many because we have, as you know, a whole host of environmental laws. And you would think, wouldn't those laws be protecting the environment? And it takes a lot of examination to come to the conclusion, as so many of the communities we have worked with have, which is that our environmental laws aren't there to protect the environment. And once you're able to come to that kind of conclusion, the kinds of environmental collapses that we're seeing become anticipated as opposed to surprising. Wow. Yeah, I... I understand it, and I've been digesting it, and it's still, uh, it's very helpful to have that clarification, that, that what has legal sanction can continue even if it's destructive and poisonous to the earth and all life. Yes, and I think it's very, I think it's very disturbing to people to find out um, when they, especially when they encounter this kind of potential destruction in their own communities as people across the country are encountering things like mining or natural gas drilling and fracking, which are really very, very destructive activities, that they find out not only do they not possess the legal authority in their own community to stop these kinds of things from coming in or to decide whether they're allowed to come in, but in fact that their state and federal government, and thus their taxpayer dollars, are being used to legally authorize these kinds of destructive activities to come into their very own communities. And so you say we're intentionally constrained by what you call our democracy problem. I think it is a democracy problem. I think that it's a big, big problem, and I think it's captured in this idea 
when we say democracy problem, I think it's very much captured in this idea of people who are going to be most affected, um, whether it's public health consequences, environmental consequences, essentially people in their very own communities who face fracking or drilling or other kinds of activities, they have a democracy problem because they don't actually get to decide whether or not those things happen and happen to them. And thus, they don't have decision-making power. And decision-making power at the local level, um, I think, is very much the essence of democracy. And community after community is running into roadblocks to that kind of decision-making. And thus, whether they're facing fracking or mining or factory farming, if they don't have that kind of decision-making power, I think it very much becomes captured as a democracy problem. And the other image you use that I think is helpful is that, that the law has built a box, a legal structure that contain us at the price of our ours and nature's well-being. Yes, we've. Uh, <laughs> I think we've coined this uh, phrase, uh, the box of allowable activism, which is in our communities, as grassroots groups, as activists, that we have a certain number of kinds of actions we can take to try to stop something, to try to protect the environment or our public health. And it's a very tightly controlled, very small, very scripted box that we find ourselves in, which include things like writing letters to our officials, begging and pleading our, um, you know, our county commissioners or our city councilors to listen to us and, and hopefully make a decision on our behalf as opposed to, for example, a corporation's behalf. And we find that within that small box of allowable activism, we can't actually achieve the things that we want to, like protecting our communities from drilling and fracking. Yeah, we the people is a great deception. Yes, and it's used in a wonderfully, I use the word camouflaged way, I think it's a veil that's been covering our eyes for so long. We have a great deal of mythology in this country that it's hard to break through it because it's so pervasive. And so when you have laws on the books like the Clean Water Act, you think that's about clean water and making sure we have it, when in fact what we find out under laws like the Clean Water Act, activities like natural gas drilling and fracking, which I know are coming into Colorado and people are very concerned about, we find that they're actually exempted under things like our Safe Drinking Water Act. And so you have to wonder, well, if our Safe Drinking Water Act at the federal level exempts activities that are in fact very destructive to aquifers and very destructive to drinking water, what are those laws all about anyway? And so I think there's a tremendously, I guess I would say, very tightly woven veil that we've been having covered our eyes as to how the world actually works, how these laws actually work, why they're on the books, and who they're working for, and who are they not working for. Um, And I'll give you just a quick example. We've worked with a number of communities in New England, for example, who face what we call water extraction or water privatization in which corporations like USA Springs or Nestle come in to bottle their water, taking hundreds of thousands of gallons of water a day from a local aquifer. In the state of New Hampshire, that activity by corporations is governed under the New Hampshire Groundwater Protection Act. A Groundwater Protection Act sounds like we should be protecting our groundwater, but in fact what communities across New Hampshire have found is that when they call up their state environmental agency to say, hey, we need help to protect our water from the Nestle's and the USA Springs from taking our water and bottling and selling it commercially. And they find out that instead of the state agency actually helping them protect their water, in fact, they're issuing permits to corporations to take it. And that all happens under the legal authority of the New Hampshire Groundwater Protection Act. Right. 
giving away one's power is the mark of a lack of initiation, or I think we could say responsible maturity. And in our state of seeming to be powerless, we obey continuing to do what we're told, which is go out and shop. Oh, boy, we do. Um, and this time of year, we <laughs> we see it more than ever. But I think that is true, and I think that we've been, we use the phrase colonized, that our brains have been colonized. I think that is absolutely the case. We've been convinced by others that if we just buy the right thing, if we just buy the right car, the right light bulb, etc., that we're going to save this place. But I think if you really spend a little bit of time examining that proposition, I think you can come to the conclusion that that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, that buying the right thing is going to solve the problem. The problem is so much more systemic than that. I mean, I wish we could solve the problems that way, but but we really simply can't. And I hope that people are, and I know in communities that we work with, more and more people are coming to that conclusion. Yeah, to go back to the democracy problem, I was just startled to have a conversation with the lawyer for uh, the drilling company on the ridge just above our town. And I, I was amazed at his confidence that he tells me, we're going to drill. It's just too valuable. Uh, there's no choice and there's there's no other way. We, we're going forward. And at first I thought that was arrogance and it really irritated me and I judged it. But after talking to you, I realized that that's a certainty born from decades of carefully tuning the law to corporate needs. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think his confidence is actually well-grounded, as irritating as it may be, because, you know, the extractive industry has pretty much dictated what our energy policies have looked like and what happens in our communities. And I think it very much takes the building of a a local grassroots movement of communities that are finding themselves affected by these kinds of activities that that are destructive to the environment and the public health and to workers and so on. I don't think that his confidence is going to change, um, and the ability of corporations to really run roughshod over our states and our localities, I don't think that changes until they're forced to change. And I think that that means building a real critical mass at the local level to drive and force the kind of change that we need to see if we're going to have sustainability in our communities. And right now, I think we're at the beginning of building that kind of grassroots movement. I think it has a long way to go, but it's good to see it begin. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are waking up to the fact that corporations have the right to chemically trespass us, and if we just sit there and take it, it's going to keep going and get worse and worse. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. I think part of the difficulty, though, that you know, in, in our community organizing, part of the problem is is that people don't even know what's happening to them, and so they get a lot of misinformation out of the industries that want to come into their community about how you know about jobs and money and and you know the golden age and so forth and so on i mean this is not new this has been happening for decades if not centuries but um, i think that we don't have a great deal of good information at our disposal in, in terms of how this is happening why it's happening how the structure of law allows this to happen over and above community wishes, over and above the best interests of our communities, of people, of residents, of nature. Um, and so I think it's an upward climb, and, it, and I would say it's incumbent upon those of us working in this realm to find ways to talk with people about what's happening and what their concerns are and help to, you know, I think in some ways validate 
the activism that they're doing um, and help them to understand why what they've currently been doing, traditional kinds of activism, why it isn't working and what they may do to do something differently. Uh, because we, this box of allowable activism allows us to do things like write public comment letters on proposed regulations of the very industries we don't want in our communities. And if we're writing letters about how to improve the regulations, the regulations themselves mean that they're coming into our communities and we might be able to tweak them a little bit better. But we've found that our communities just aren't interested in having them at all because they're so, so, so destructive. Um, and I think we have a lot of work to do to help people to understand how this structure works because for 200-plus years we've had a wonderful mythology built up that it works wonderfully well um, and that there's nothing wrong with it. And that's an unpackaging that we do. And one of the ways that we do that is through our democracy schools. I'm just going to summarize what we've said so far, and that is that Corporate rights have the entitlement to violate the circle of life. And if health is a circle, many circles of exchange, health is illegal. This is William Evans. We're shifting gears. I'm speaking with Mari Margill from the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund about health, sustainability, the relationship to the rights of nature, and corporate power. At present, ownership of land carries with it the right to destroy the health of the land to break the circle. Is that correct? Yes. You know, I guess a way to think about it is this way, which is we have a very strong idea about property rights in this country. Um, and those property rights now, if you, own, if you own a parcel of land, you can do pretty much whatever you want with it. And the work that we have been doing with people in different places across the country has done a bit of a reshifting of that proposition such that we've worked with a number of communities now to put in place local laws, local ordinances, which recognize the rights of ecosystems within those communities, which means it doesn't stop development of your land. What it does, is, or other kinds of activities on your land, what it does is it stops those kinds of activities that will interfere with the ability of ecosystems, of natural communities to be helpful, to exist, and to flourish. So it's about a rethinking about what does it mean to have a property right and ensuring that your property rights don't interfere with the ability of ecosystems for themselves to have the right to exist um, and to regenerate and to evolve. This is really a, the essence of a lot of your work. Say more about how your organization is helping communities through protecting the rights of nature. Well, it's work that's grown over the past five, six, seven years here in the United States. This idea of rights of nature, rights of ecosystems, is one that is pretty new on the scene, if you will, but I think it grows very much out of a long history of people's movements in this country and others in which we've expanded what I call the body of rights. Um, when our country was founded over 200 years ago, the Constitution only recognized rights of a very small percentage of the population. It was white men of wealth and property. And we saw some movements emerge, like the abolitionist movement, like the suffragist movement. And those movements were about expanding the rights that we had under our constitutional framework. So the abolitionists, for example, their work was about freeing the slaves and recognizing rights of the freed slaves so that they had constitutional rights. And so, for example, we saw the 14th Amendment that found that freed slaves have equal rights under the law, right to due process, that sort of thing. Similarly, with the suffragist movement, 
again, expanding the body of rights, women were considered to be property under the law, much like slaves were property under the law. And through the suffragist movement, they were moved from being considered property to being rights-bearing people. And so they went from property to rights-bearing, which means that they they were able to garner the right to vote, for example, and, and over time women have gained more rights. And I think we're in a, and so that body of rights, that is who has rights, has been expanded. We've seen that expanded to include um, children, for example, now have rights in a way that they didn't before. And that's being extended even further now to this idea of nature. Um, and nature as a living, breathing being uh, having rights, rights to defend itself in court, for example the right to exist and to flourish, um, and, for example, to have people stand in the shoes of a river to defend that. And this is an idea that I think has really become, moved from the theoretical into the practical when we saw the very first communities um, in the nation several years ago begin to put these into law. Um, So we had Tamaqua Borough in Pennsylvania, was the very first in the country to do so. What that meant is that ecosystems within that borough went from being treated as property being recognized as rights-bearing. And this work has grown. We have about two to three dozen communities across the country, including the city of Pittsburgh, um, for example, that have now recognized the rights of ecosystems to exist and flourish within those municipalities. And the work garnered the attention of people in Ecuador um, in 2007 and 2008 when they were writing a new constitution. And Ecuador has faced tremendous environmental destruction on the ha- uh, at the hand of multinational corporations. There's a major case about Texaco or Chevron in the Amazon, which some folks may be familiar with, about oil being dumped um, in these very fragile ecosystems. It's a case that's been going on for decades now. Right. People in Ecuador have just seen their landscapes, their ecosystems, their species being decimated. And so we were invited in to talk with their constitutional delegates about what it might mean to move nature from being considered property to being rights-bearing within Ecuador, and they asked us to draft provisions for their constitution, which we did, and then ultimately through a national referendum in September of 2008, the people of Ecuador approved a new constitution by an overwhelming margin, which for the very first time, we have a country recognizing in its constitution the rights of nature. And, you know, it's a remarkable thing for Ecuador to do. Um, And it means that Ecuador is now the first country in the world to base its system of environmental protection instead of on a property framework, that is, nature being property. Instead, they've moved from a property framework to a rights framework in terms of how they conduct environmental protection. And when you give rights to nature, you allow it to be, to flourish, and do the nourishment that it's done for from the beginning for all of us. I think it very much is about changing the relationship between mankind and nature um, yes. and driving that change into law. Um, that is something that's absolutely essential, not only for the survival of nature, but our own survival. It's really returning to an indigenous worldview of respect and partnership with the earth and atmosphere and elements. When we were in Ecuador and we met with some of the indigenous delegates to the Constitutional Assembly, they said something very similar to us. Um, as you said, and, and they said, in fact, in Ecuador, they've had recognized collective rights of indigenous peoples within Ecuador, and that they, they saw the rights of nature as an expansion of their collective rights as indigenous peoples. And so I think they share that very sentiment, which you just said. Tell us a little bit more about the phone call your organization received from Bill Twist, because 
This is huge for a nation to protect the rights of nature. Bill Twist is the founder of the Pachamama Alliance here in the United States, and it's, and his organization has been involved um, with indigenous peoples in Ecuador and environmental protection there as well. And they became um, involved early on in the drafting of the new constitution. And we got a phone call from Bill sometime in 2007, in which he we had not we did not know of him before. We weren't familiar with his work, and he but he learned a bit about ours um, in terms of the work we were doing in some very small places in the United States to recognize rights of nature and law. And so we had a discussion about whether or not this was something that we thought could be brought to the constitutional drafting process in Ecuador. And at first we, we thought he was a little crazy, frankly, because um, we had been working in some very small places. But, you know, we chatted with him a number of times. Um, and ultimately he invited us um, to come into Ecuador um, and essentially his organization hosted us there and helped us navigate meeting with different delegates and meeting with different environmental organizations and other folks. And over time, a real synergy developed about what this might look like and why Ecuador might want to move in this direction. And I think it's a great testament to Bill that he had the vision that this could happen um, in a place that he cares so deeply about. And so when you restore the rights of nature... You also ban certain corporate rights and strip corporations of their constitutional protections. That's work that we have been doing in the U.S. It's not that that is not what's happened in Ecuador. Just to clarify that. Okay. Um, but in the United States, what communities have found is their ability to protect the natural environment is interfered with by corporations having this body of constitutional rights and protections. Um, Many people are familiar with, like, the Citizens United decision, which came down about two years ago now, in which it was an expansion of corporate rights, in that case, First Amendment rights for corporations to participate in elections. Um, Corporations include a wide range um, of constitutional rights and protections, and what communities that we've worked with have found that if they wanted to protect the environment, if they want to recognize rights for nature, because corporate rights routinely interfere with the ability of nature to exist and to thrive, that in order to protect nature and recognize nature's rights, it necessarily required eliminating the ability of corporations to have those rights under the Constitution, which would allow them to undermine those local laws and interfere with the rights of nature. And so those things have gone hand in hand. So, Mari, not all corporations are destructive and toxic. We also have healthy corporations in our community. That is definitely true, Will. Um, And this really isn't about trying to stop corporations from being able to exist and carry out their business. The question is for these communities um, that we've been engaged with is how decisions about those activities get made. For example, if corporations are conducting activities that are destructive to natural processes, and communities are very concerned about that everywhere, um, but they don't seem to have the legal authority to stop that. And whether or not we'd want to be authorizing corporations to conduct such destructive activities, I think these are very, very real, very tangible concerns for communities. And right now, we communities do not have the legal authority to stop those kinds of decisions from being made to authorize corporations to conduct those kinds of activities. It's really about a higher level of structure of governance in which we're giving corporations the ability, the rights, the powers, and the privileges to dictate really what our 
the quality of our air, the quality of our water, the quality of our soils and natural environment, and that has proven itself um, to be a very destructive course. And community after community are now saying they want to turn that tide, but doing so requires them to put in place new structures of law which authorize the community itself to be making those kinds of critical decisions. Yes. Sometimes corporations will use lawsuits and target and threaten activists who resist their agendas. Just briefly say a little bit about that, because it seems like a form of bullying. Yes. Just to say that activists have found themselves on the receiving end of corporate bullying, if you will, which means that they've been threatened with lawsuits if they try to fight a corporation from coming in. And it's, you, you can only imagine the kind of chilling effect that has on people who've been trying to organize in their communities when they come up against the possibility of a lawsuit from a major corporation. That It's a very, very chilling what happens in a community when that occurs. Sure. Well, what's the first step to a community concerned about health and protecting nature? Generally, our work um, as a community begins just with a phone call uh, with someone who's concerned about something happening in their community. We talk with them about their concerns and about the work we've been doing in different places around the country. It usually involves an examination of how the structure of law works, and it means a bit of demythologizing about how it works, um, because we generally think it should be working for us, but we often find it does not. And so from that conversation, it's often a small group that comes forward to have a larger conversation, and very often from there they request to have a democracy school. In our democracy schools, we've taught over 200 across the country, a number of them in Colorado, and it's a weekend seminar, Friday night and Saturday, in which we examine how our structure of law works. That is, why is it that corporations seem to have more decision-making power than we do in our own communities, how that came to be, how it's something that's not brand new. It didn't happen with the Citizens United decision, for example. It's, it's been a long, long history. And from there, what is it that communities are doing when they come up against these kinds of barriers? And, and so it, there's a lot of strategic conversation as well about what communities are doing and why. What has resulted from Ecuador giving nature the right to be? What I think Ecuador has done, apart from the very large role it places um, itself in and being a pioneer in this work, within the country itself, what we've seen earlier this year in 2011 is the very first case come down in the court in which a river itself was a plaintiff. That is, a river itself brought a lawsuit, obviously, um, with two individuals standing in the shoes of that river, and it was the Vilcabamba River which was facing destruction as part of a government construction project expansion of a road, I believe, or a highway. And there was deep concern about the impacts on the health of the river as a result of that construction project, which was taking place right by the river. So a case was brought um, in the provincial court of Loja in Ecuador, and the court found for the very first time that under the constitutional provisions in Ecuador, that the rights of the river were being violated by this project, and so therefore stopped the project. And so it's the very first time we see a river being able to have the standing to represent itself in court. Um, And so it's the first time we're really seeing these constitutional provisions being brought to bear to protect critical ecosystems within the country. Wow. I I find that very beautiful and exciting that a human being is once again, standing tall on behalf of a river and on behalf of nature. Yes, me too. (laughs) It's been wonderful talking with you. You as well. Thank you for having me.